Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Overfor mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skide af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. Hello and welcome back to the game podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Uh, today alongside the two Toms, well, two Toms, Tom Clark, Tom Roddy and Gregor Robertson. Tom Olnert hasn't made the list, unfortunately. Today. Anyway, loads for us uh, to discuss. Um, Tom Roddy, I've got to start with you because this is for me one of the strangest, most ridiculous, greatest stories of the season so far. Um, once again, you know, to any people out there who sit and watch Coronation Street or Emmerdale or EastEnders, what are you doing? The soap opera that is football has everything that you would need and more. It's real. It's real life. Who needs footballers' wives? Who needs dream team when you've got Chelsea FC? Because Frank Lampard uh, has agreed to return Chelsea as their caretaker manager until the end of the season while the club searches for a permanent successor to Graham Potter. At the Times revealed yesterday morning, that was Wednesday morning, that Chelsea were considering asking Lampard, the former midfielder of the club, of course, to return uh, while they hold talks with Julian Nagelsmann and Luis Enrique over becoming the next permanent head coach. We'll talk about those two in a moment as well. Um, he said to be unveiled as the caretaker and expected to be on the touchline at Molyneux on Saturday for Chelsea's next Premier League game against Wolverhampton Wanderers. Tom Roddy, the question that I I wrote down first was what the hell? Um, <laughs> but but I thought let me let me be a little bit more No, that's uh, fine here. Right. That's fine. That's a yeah. answer that one. <laughs> so the question is is um tell us why this is happening and does it make sense to you? <laughs> Honestly, Tom, after all that build-up, I thought you'd be ready to go with an answer, and you're still so baffled. I was baffled. enjoying it all. I was enjoying all the soap operas and everything. And, and, I, and it was, I was actually thinking, I was sitting listening to that here and thinking that it's remarkable that Chelsea have, Chelsea have had crazier weeks than this, um, incredibly. You know, they had the week of the sanctions and and fans getting kicked out of their club shop because they had to close. It. So it's it's remarkable that this isn't one of the craziest weeks in Chelsea's history, let alone recent history. But it is a quite remarkable story. Graham Potter goes and, and Frank Lampard comes back. I think for fans, and I do think this is a key part of it for fans, there will be a romanticism around it. And and it's it's good PR because it will get it will get the fans on side at a difficult moment. And there are question marks over his coaching capabilities. We saw that only two years ago when he was sacked by the club, by Roman Abramovich, for struggling to organise a team, organise a defence. They were leaking goals. He was struggling to coach the expensive signings of Kepper, Riza Balaga, Timo Werner and Kai Havertz, uh, two of which are, are still there, of course, Riza Balaga and, and Havertz. And in that intervening period, they've got a few more expensive signings that they've brought in. His legacy at the club was obviously developing 
the academy players, developing young players. So again, that, that could be a positive here. But the fact it's a, a caretaker role, he's in as a caretaker until the end of the season. The situation for Chelsea right now is Champions League or bust. They have they have to win the Champions League to have any chance of being in the same competition next year because they're 11th in the Premier League table, bottom of that. There's a massive chasm between the top and the bottom half. They are, they are bottom and miles off the top four. I mean, I, I know this has been a crazy season, but for them to finish in the top four is, is really unthinkable right now. So they have to win the Champions League. And when I saw this decision, I almost saw a little bit of 2012 about it. Robbie Di Matteo gets put in charge of the team and there, there isn't any logic around Chelsea winning the Champions League that season. They are taken there on pure crest of a wave, really. It was a crest of a wave. And I think that's what they, they have to do now. They, that's what they need now. So they will use this kind of spirit of Chelsea, this the history of Lampard and what he stands for to try and recreate it. The main difference between those two seasons, of course, being that uh, the Chelsea team in 2012, uh, even though it had lots of issues that season and injuries, was still laced with proven winners, experienced players who had been there and done it. And Mm. uh, I guess in hindsight, lots of people thinking that Di Matteo maybe didn't need to have that much impact. It's a very different situation to what Frank Lampard would need to do to get them to a Champions League final, I think. Yeah, yeah, spot on. That team had character. It, it, the dressing, the reason that Roman Abramovich used to sack managers so often was because the dressing room at that period uh, ran itself. They didn't necessarily need a manager to, other than coaching and organising and the, and the tactical side. They they had the leadership and the and the spirit that this Chelsea team definitely doesn't have at the moment and and that's no that's not really a criticism of them it's it's a reality of of the last year and these last two transfer windows where that squad's been totally transformed and there are figures like Reese James and Enzo Fernandez who show signs early signs that they can become those figures but right now they they lack that and they invested in a, a a group of young staff. And the reason why I use the, the word staff is because one of their investments in up and coming people, it, it was Graham Potter. And, and that was that was the one that that was the first domino to, to really fall. The first failure of, of the kind of investment. So that's Lampard's job. Lampard's job is to really whip them up and get the best out of them, which in a way he did in that at Everton, he did in that first in that first season. There was a they used Goodison Park, they used that team was definitely playing for him. I don't think Everton is Everton is not something that anyone around Lampard would necessarily want to be being spoken about now because it wasn't seen as a success and it wasn't a success. In which case, I think this is um, this is us seeing a manager fail upwards despite his connections with the club, really, because what we saw at Everton wasn't great. I don't think anyone would say that it was a huge success from Lampard. Didn't weren't really sure what Everton were trying to do towards the end. And yes, okay, they did stay uh, in the Premier League, but I think for a lot of people, Goodison Park and those Everton fans were the difference between relegation uh, and Premier League status. Gregor, so so I'm still really asking about your reaction to this, really, because I'm still really confused as to what they truly believe Frank Lampard can achieve in the role in such a short space of time, if not even if it were longer. I mean, why would he be given the Chelsea hot seat other than his playing connections? Yeah, I mean, it, it says it all, really, that we saw, you know, there was footage of Frank Lampard sitting in the stands in the game at the game on Tuesday, and no one, not even the craziest lunatic, would ever have considered that Frank Lampard was going to get the job, like within forty-eight hours or whatever. That's like that kind of says it all. This is like I see a lot of people, like normally, kind of people I regard as fair-minded and sort of like joined-up thinkers, trying to rationalise this and say that like this is the first kind of 
proper sensible decision that Bowley and his co-investors have, have made. What kind of warped reality are we living in? <laughs> Is the Premier League living in when appointing Frank Lampard, who was sacked 10 weeks ago by relegation to the Endeavour and is considered sensible what kind of world are we living in I'm sorry it's insane and it's actually I think it's insulting to Graham Potter sack Graham Potter if you've got a kind of clear upgrade ready and waiting to come in and as you say their hopes for the season are now resting upon winning the Champions League like you know it's quite a big quite a big uh, leap there as well but anyway if you've got someone you know if it is Enrique if it's Nagelsmann Pochettino whatever if he's ready to come in you can kind of just about get past Potter's dismissal because it's the Premier League and it's football and this is what happens. But to go to Frank Lampard to to seek the up, uptick and the uplift to try and win the Champions League is an insult to Graham Potter, I think. I think I think the sensible decision part is probably more focused around the fact they want to take their time on finding the successor rather than jumping straight into another decision Keep Potter, immediately. Then. Do you think Chelsea would have won the Champions League with I, Potter? No, but I don't think they'll do it under Frank Lampard. I don't think they would have done it anyway. And like, Graham Potter, it's insane that they're in this position in the first place, that they are so, you know, their they're one goal for the season is to win the Champions League. And that they think that getting rid of Graham Potter and replacing them with Frank Lampard is the route to doing that. You have to ignore absolutely everything that's gone on in the last... Eight, nine months or whatever, the £600 million have spent on how many players, you know, dismissing Tuchel, giving Potter 31 games, I think. You have to ignore all of that to come anywhere near to saying that this can be seen as a sensible decision. Uh, Tom Clark, what do you have to say on the matter? Well, you should all remember what Gregor said about knowing uh, people he considers to be clever and thinking uh, thinking strange things. I love it. I think it's great. Uh, <laughs> I, sat, I sat next to Gregor having to hold my tongue as he was saying that about it being absolute madness. I think it's one of the first things Todd Bowley's done in the last six months that actually makes sense. Oh I, 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 I agree. I take your points about Graham Potter. I think, I, I think they're excellent points. But when it comes to the actual appointment, we've talked about Lampard's tactical deficiencies uh, and struggles in the past. But Hugh, you talked about it um, with this team and the differences with Di Matteo in the past, and Tom talked about whipping up this squad. This squad has looked apathetic at times this season, and he's certainly an upgrade on Bruno Salter, and it's a great PR move. You know, that's the, is that's he? the point. That's is the he, point. though? Yes, he is. I think Come that's on. a big assumption. Well, why is he such an upgrade on Bruno Salter? I'm not saying that Bruno Salter is definitely an upgrade on Lampard. Just by having... we haven't seen We haven't seen anything from Bruno Salter, and what we've seen from Frank Lampard it's hardly something that makes you think, wow, what a coach, what a coup for Chelsea. I mean, just on the, let's be realistic. I, I saw this and thought, I mean, I probably would have given Bruno the, t- the 10 or 11 games. Maybe he's got something that we haven't seen before. Like we, We've seen from Lampard enough to, to, to make us all pretty much know, dead cert, Chelsea aren't going to do anything special at the end of this season because I just can't see how he summons it. Like This is a manager who pretty much is being lifted off the floor where I was sitting here I think most of us were thinking right will he ever coach again like is he is he the kind of man that will take a job in the championship because who's going to give him a Premier League job now like that's where I thought his career was and he's going to take on Real Madrid in the quarterfinals of the Champions League next where has that come from what has he done to deserve that opportunity I I just I I don't see it I I I agree with we can talk about Lampard not deserving this and certain things uh, related to management and certain people getting chances and others not. But I just just to finish no, but my I'm point... Talking about, I'm talking about qualities of, of a coach when I say deserve it. I'm saying we've seen enough to make us think that he's not that good a coach. At least with Bruno, we haven't seen anything at all. Maybe he, he is a good coach. Lampard's not. No, but the point I was going to make about um, in comparisons with Bruno Salter is, the, is, is, is about the PR move for Chelsea and mm. also the positivity around such an appointment. He's still such an incredibly popular figure. You see a lot of Chelsea fans on social media this morning delighted at the appointment. And I think... When you, heads a shake. when you, I'm sure. Listen, <laughs> listen. No one, no one has criticised Frank Lampard's coaching ability on this podcast more than me. I don't think. I think I was slagging him off when he was at Chelsea last time, even when people thought he was doing well. My point with this is that even when you think about Graham Potter and Tom can talk to this far better than I can because he was probably in these press conferences. But we had a lot of chat about, oh, this is my first game in the Champions League. This is, you know, and I know it's all true, and that's fine. He should have been given time potentially. But you know, and then he has his kind of glow up, and then Bruno Salter's in a in a press conference talking about, "I never thought I'd be here. I've never done a team talk." There's a lot of that around this group of players in this squad. 
Frank Lampard doesn't have any of that. Frank Lampard's won won it all. You know, I know these are all cliches, but he 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 has. He's got that stature. You know, this is a similar premise to how Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was a success briefly at Manchester United. Like, I'm not saying it's a good appointment in the long term, but I'm saying I can see the logical sense from a PR move and from galvanising this group of players that has seemed largely lost and apathetic, particularly when they've not got Thiago Silva in the team, which they have at the minute. From that point of view, it makes sense. Is he a great coach? No. Do I think they'll win the Champions League with him? No. Can I see the logic of appointing him now when the club is looking completely lost and they've got some big games coming up, bring in a club legend who's who's won the lot and will galvanise the players? That bit makes sense to me. I want to go back to a point that, um, that you made, Tom, about um, this being one of the few things that made sense from Todd Bowley so far. I just wondered generally, and I'll come to you, Tom Roddy, on this. What do you think this decision says about the, the Chelsea hierarchy? Are they finally starting to get British football? Is this, is this a, a motive decision, something that makes them think, oh, actually, the connection with the fans maybe means something and maybe that can drive us on? Because the other point that was made about the, the squad being apathetic goes back to the decisions that they've possibly made over the length of a lot of players' contracts. Tied in for so long, your, your future pretty much secure. I think Ian Wright made the point when he was broadcasting this week that you don't really have to pull your finger out for four years if you're on an eight-year deal. You know, you don't really have to start playing until halfway through it. So um, is this the result of a combination of their decisions? But equally, um, do you agree with the point that maybe this is the first positive step that they've taken? Yeah, Ian Wright did make that point. And my my thought was that it, it would amaze me if the majority of footballers thought in that way of, of thinking financially my my future is secured. I, I don't think most players that make it in such a competitive industry at that level, at that moment of their career are thinking because the money is so high. But I don't think it's a fine I don't think it's a financial thing. I think if you're a young player, you've moved to a new city and you've got a really long-term deal, you kind of think, okay, I've got some time to settle in here. You know, it's not that it's not necessarily a financial thing. It's just that, you know, the pressure on each and every game is not really the same when you're thinking, actually, you know, I'm going to have a good couple of seasons after this to work my way into the first team. I don't necessarily have to arrive at the club, get out there, immediately start scoring goals to ensure that I'm going to have a longer-term future at the club. Like, I, I think at other clubs, even if you signed a five-year deal, that pressure would feel a lot higher than what it feels like at Chelsea right now. To be perfectly honest, no, I'm 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 still not sure on that. I think um, the volume of players would have more of an impact on that. I mean, like you know, there's reports that some of them are getting changed changed in the corridor and stuff. Like, uh, I get the, I get what you're saying about the the long term deals, but I think more likely the fact that you just one one of like a vast kind of influx of of new players, yeah. it's almost a lottery whether you get a, a chance. How do you do enough to impress to get a shot in the team. It's like there's yeah. so many players ahead of you. That's the kind of thing that's going to be. And, and and I guess Gregor, it doesn't really send a massive sign that we wanted you. Exactly. You know, like if you're one of two or three players that come in during a transfer window, you think right, they've got a plan for me here. They've brought me for a very specific reason. You know, if you're one of 25 players that come Assets. in, you, just, you, you know, you probably sit back and say, not really sure what the club wants from me, but I'll take I'll take the contract. Yeah, you're an asset. You're, you're, all of the, all of this has made made Potter's job harder, and it's not going to. I don't know if it's going to make Frank Lampard's job any easier. Certainly, you might see him going back to some of the players that he, he knows or he he thinks he can rely upon. Uh, you certainly imagine Mason Mount will be right back in the team, but his job's not going to be that easy either. He's still got a ridiculous number of players to try and keep happy, or he's going to have to punt some of them to the sidelines and focus on a core core group that's going to try and take them to Champions League glory. In the spirit of um, trying to all kind of agree, despite me kind of going out on a limb and saying it's uh, logical, I would just there's a lot of um, disagreement in the comments on the Times uh, on Times Online this morning. But one one commenter, Richard, said it's logical and funny in equal measure, and I think that kind of sums up what we're all saying. But one thing I quickly wanted to ask to Tom and to you, Hugh, because you guys are often in press conferences and speaking to managers. Do do either of you agree with my point about the kind of Lampard galvanising and kind of giving the club a bit of a sense of pride and direction? And I know it's, you know, nonsense, cliched stuff these days, but it matters. This PR stuff matters. We've talked about it so much on the podcast when you think about Nathan Jones and Southampton. You know, we've talked about it so often with managers. Can you see the logic in that respect? And Tom, obviously, you're, you're going to the presser later as well. 
that was kind of the point I was making earlier is that, and, and why I disagreed with the idea of Bruno Saltor continuing with him is I genuinely don't think it has, it would have anything to do with whether the qualities of each of them as a coach, it is what they represent. And Bruno rep, would represent an extension of Potter, I think. They, they did okay against Liverpool the other night, but I still think the players see him as just the continuously candidate of Graham Potter. And what you need when a manager goes is something completely fresh. And Lampard, from, from incredibly, considering it's only been two years since he was there, for a lot of those players, he, he blends both those things, being completely fresh, but also representing the history of the club and galvanising not only the players but also the fan base so i don't i don't think it is necessarily about coaching here which is which is a sounds like an absolutely ludicrous thing to be saying but i do think they're relying on on spirit right now and just to go on uh, Hugh's question earlier about whether the ownership are more in touch with the fans the important point to make is that when they hired Potter, they did it. They did it on their own. It was it was immediate. It was almost imme- you know immediately after taking over in a way in in September. In, since then, they've got their co-sporting directors in Lawrence Stewart and Paul Stanley, and they are guys who have been steeped in British and European football for for their careers. So now they have the experts in place they're experts they're chosen experts in place they are relying on them to make the the decisions which of course ultimately Todd Bowley has has the deciding decision as as chairman but they will be guided through this uh, Tom uh, Clark I can I think I can answer your question and take us to our next point uh, at the same time really I was looking at the Chelsea boss and I was thinking about the two candidates, Luis Enrique, former Spain and Barcelona coach, Julian Nagelsmann, the former Bayern boss. And I I saw the reports this week of Enrique coming over for talks and I thought, what an erratic character to put into a club like this. This is a a manager who has no problem walking away from a job. There's no problem publicly talking about issues behind the scene. Is such an individual when it comes to his coaching. And that is 100% the sole focus. And then you've got Julian Nagelsmann, who is, is not a yes man either. He's very much his own man in a, a very unique character in terms of world football, given his age and the jobs that he's already done. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, I hear Frank Lampard's coming. I think, oh, a yes man. Exactly what Chelsea needs. Someone who's not going to rock the boat, who knows how lucky they are to be in that position, who clearly loves the club and so it doesn't want negative headlines about them out there. And that is the only way that I see Frank Lampard really making sense. Okay, and the fact that the fans love him. And so that brings a bit of positivity back to Stamford Bridge. You know, I I look at these two coaches and I look at the Lampard decision. And again, for me, I'm like, oh, they they don't know what they need going forward because they've almost got in, in the shape of a Frank Lampard, the kind of character that would fit the football club. And they're clearly going to appoint someone next. I mean, if it's Luis Enrique, who's really, I think, opposed to um, a smooth running of a football club, which obviously Chelsea is not. And then Nagelsmann, probably the same in my mind as well in terms of his character, although, yeah, not as big as Enrique as a personality. But again, I just sit there and I think Chelsea are about to make a mistake, another mistake. Not that I think, by the way, I think that both of them are very good coaches. But um, if you if your club is not stable, which I don't think Chelsea is, the person that goes out each and every week speaks to the media is the face of the football club. Okay, needs to have maybe a little bit more dynamism than, than Graham Potter, but needs to be on side. Really needs to be on side. And, and if things start going wrong, I don't see either of those characters doing that. So it's a big decision next. And and really, Tom Rolly, the next point is who's it going to be? Who do you think? My early belief is that Julian Nagelsmann is the front runner and part of that is because of the guys at Chelsea who have worked with him already uh Christopher Vivell who is the technical director 
and an influential voice at Chelsea knows Nagelsmann really well from Hoffenheim uh, a long, long time ago. And then they worked together at Leipzig too. And at Leipzig, Lawrence Stewart, like I said, one of the two guys who are leading this search for a new manager. He also worked with Nagelsmann at Leipzig and, and likes him and believes he's a good coach and someone he can he can work with, they can work with. So right now, I would say Nagelsmann is, is leading it. They had talks with Enrique, in-person talks with Enrique in London yesterday on uh, Wednesday. I forget what day it is now. On so Wednesday. report on Chelsea does do, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> on, on Wednesday. And... Um, and he's certainly he's certainly in the running too. But part of the reason Lampard is coming in is because they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to look back on it and think, yeah, we should have seen that Nagelsmann was hard to work with, can be quite cantankerous, and and that was that was a mistake we fell into. He he fits he fits it in a way because of being young, because he plays an attractive style. He, he he's almost like a Graham Potter who has already been there and done it in a sense and has a bit more of that personality that you'd expect from managers at that level. But they they will also go and interview other candidates. Mauricio Pochettino's name has, has been involved. He was interviewed in September when Potter got the job. I'm not sure Pochettino will end up getting it. There are wild cards as well. I know they admire what Vincent Company's done at Burnley. There's even Abel Ferreira at Palmeiras. He's he's a he's a little bit of a, a dark horse in in all of this, a bit of a, a wild card, but names they are looking at. Uh, final point on Chelsea, Gregor, when it comes to the football. They did play this week. Chelsea nil, Liverpool nil. Once again, lack of goal scoring is the issue for Chelsea. Uh, I did some crude calculations after the game because I was concerned. 11 goals from 226 shots. I'm fed up. I don't even support Chelsea. What's the issue? How do they solve it? What's the issue? <laughs> I mean, From yeah. a footballing perspective, I think why aren't they scoring goals? Is it just finishing? Well, clearly finishing is a big part of it, but it's also personnel. We, you know, it's been said many, many times. It's it's incredible the number of players they signed and the amount of money they spent. They haven't signed a striker, and we saw it numerous chances. Kai Havertz missed several. Joe Felix does like remarkable things. You think you know you're like your eyes widen. Just that last final bit just isn't happening. He's something you know. He's I don't know how many times I've lost count of how many times he's hit the woodwork. There was a great uh, save and tackle by uh, Joel Matip in this game uh, in the first half after he kind of shimmied his way into the box he's you know he shows flashes of brilliance but he's not producing goals yeah that's the obvious thing I think Graham Potter would have been sitting watching this thinking is the next man going to really make much difference when this is such a clear and obvious issue I'm sure he'd be quite glad to (laughs) to have seen seen another goalless draw so like it's obvious what what their problem is and Having said all that, they were far superior to Liverpool, who, who just looked a shadow of their, of their former selves, lacking the energy to be carved open so easily, and they were pretty fortunate to escape with a point. Let's move on. We'll stick with a London club. West Ham United were in action this week, and their manager, David Moyes, says he has no doubt that he retains the backing of the club's board despite the 5-1 thrashing at home by Newcastle United. The defeat uh, leaves West Ham 15th, only outside the relegation zone on goal difference. And David Moyes actually saying he probably would have left early as well when he was asked about the mass exodus from West Ham fans at the London Stadium. Tom Clark, is David Moyes lucky to still be in a job? Yes, I think he is. Um, And I say that as a David Moyes fan, as you know, on this podcast. I mean, I'm certainly hoping he stays in the job because I'm getting an early shout in for our end of season look back at our early season predictions where I'm pretty sure that I said I didn't think there would be that many managerial sackings this season. Um, And what are we on now? 13, 14? Uh, So, yeah, I'm I'm getting in early with that one. But he is lucky, isn't he? Uh, 
it's the manner of this defeat as much as anything for Moyes because it's very un-David Moyes, isn't it, to be beaten 5-1 at home. In the, from the game itself, the third goal is a killer. And, but it's the way the team folded after that that's the real worry and that kind of suggests, you know, for a long time the suggestion has been that David Moyes will be leaving West Ham at the end of the season. And the idea that we, you know, we get from um, talking to the reporters and speaking to the con- contacts at the club is that that is the idea that they want to kind of get through to the end of the season with Moyes keeping them up. And obviously we're kind of in a similar position that we've been in before. Um, Matt Lawton and Gary Jacob have both written stories earlier in the season saying that Moyes won game from the sack and he then won those two games respectively. I can't remember who they were against, but they were kind of set up games against teams where you'd be hoping as a West Ham fan that you could get points and they did. And now, now they've been thrashed and they go and play Fulham on Saturday. So you wonder whether there's there's another case for a Moyes one game from the sack. But the manner of that defeat certainly puts him a lot closer to the edge, I'd say. Um, and who knows, by the time you're listening to this, maybe we'll be on another managerial sacking. But I, even as a David Moyes fan and all the things that he's achieved at West Ham in previous seasons, I think to answer your question, yeah, he's very lucky to be still be in a job. I have some sympathy for him. I think that some of the performances individual performances were just were really shocking in this game and they have been for a bit of time quite some time now and I know that the manager his presence you know influences and creates arguably the the atmosphere and the environment and it might not be great but some of the defending was just laughable Mm. Kurt Zuma looked like he couldn't move his feet I don't know if he I know he's had injury problems but the way he was split in fact for both of Joe Ellington's goals the first one when he could have had some Communication with Kerr could have been better, but he just didn't turn round. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then before he knew it, Joe Ellington was running behind them uh, through on goal. And then for in, in the second half, for Joe Ellington's second goal, uh, all he had to do, he kind of didn't even have to do a trick. He just touched it to the left, and it looked like Zuma couldn't move his feet to even mm. attempt to block it. He didn't even try in the end. It was it was so. Like, I have sympathy for Moyes in that regard because no matter what you do as a manager, you cannot legislate for things like that. Um, and the goalkeeper's error. Uh, and Agerd's error. The first goal, crikey, that can happen. Kerr tried to head the ball back to the goalkeeper, but he headed out, out for a corner, and he scored from that in the second phase. But, like I say, I have some, some sympathy for Moyes, and, and the thing is, you look at their running now, and they've got Arsenal, Liverpool, and United at home, City away, and Leicester and Palace towards the end of the season as well, uh, away, which could, could be crucial pivotal games, and a couple of European quarterfinals thrown there, so... Like it's it's going to be tight, no doubt about it. But fundamentally, too, it all you know, I know that the goals changed the game, but the 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 thing that Newcastle's performance and great form has, has been built on the foundation of it is, is like real hard work. The way they closed down for uh, Agard for the uh, for the third goal just after half time, the way that Anthony Gordon flew into a tackle for the for the fourth, and then they you know sprung a counter attack. The way that three three players hustled Paqueta for the fifth. There was quite a, a marked contrast between the two teams in that regard too. So that's that's kind of worrying for West Ham. It bullied them, but in a in a really um, I was going to say stylish way. No, just in a really pre-planned, thought-out, well-coached manner. It wasn't just physicality and intensity and just running more. You know, the traps were set and they were exposed. And you, you might watch the goals alone and think. Newcastle got a little bit of luck because of the individual errors maybe, but they were the ones that were constantly applying pressure and West Ham just crumbled. And it was one of those where you almost felt the goals were so comical that maybe David Moyes, the manager, was going to pay the price off the back of them just because it looked like his players had lost any sense of confidence. And just, I mean, the decision-making was so poor. I mean, forget the individual errors. Again, to try and dribble the ball when it's basically pressure being applied to three defenders at the back by three attackers. I don't even know where he was going to dribble it back to Fabianski and leave it at his feet. I mean, I'm not really sure where he was going with it. And then again, Fabianski, the delivery of the pass into him was just, it didn't really have enough weight on it to carry it out on his left foot. So he had to control it in the middle of his body. And when there's a player on right on top of him, I mean, that, that, that's just one goal, to be perfectly honest. But I agree with everything that you said. Zuma just looked like he didn't want to be there. I mean, it was just, it was it was very, very strange, to be perfectly honest. And he's um, someone who's, who they've kind of, throughout the season when he's been injured, they've been saying, oh, you know, Kurt's nearly back. Because he has been good for them. But yeah. that's what's, you know, equally, so is, so is Agard, to be honest. You know, he's missed football with injury and he's been another one. Oh, we've nearly got him back. But that's what's, that's what's worrying. There's no kind of, 
you know, these are supposed to be big players for them and they're, they're making some some pretty basic errors. You have to say though, Newcastle, the way they turn those kind of transitions into goals or attacks, either often through Trippies, like one kind of sweeping pass from Trippy or from uh, Guimaraes, uh, they're set up brilliant for that just to feed uh, Joel Linton or say Maximan on the run. They're, they they really are a very well well old machine at the moment. It's the consistency of performance from Newcastle at the moment that I think is just it's going to carry them, in my opinion, into the top four throughout the rest of the season. They're third in the table now. That is four wins on the spin. Tom Clark, I, I think they are turning into a bit of a machine right now. Yeah, they definitely are. And you mentioned four wins on the spin, but I can remember us talking around the um, time of the Carabao Cup final about a kind of little dip in form. They'd had those draws uh, against West Ham and Bournemouth and then they lost, I think, in the final to United and also to um, Liverpool and City, I think. So they'd gone on a little bit of a wobble and we kind of thought, thought had they run out of steam? Had the machine kind of uh, stalled? But the way they've got back on track is incredibly impressive and Eddie Howe deserves great credit for that. And I think you're right, recovering from a wobble it can be as significant as having one, it seems, this season. You know, Arsenal did it with their chase for the title and now Newcastle are doing it with the run to the top four. And I think you're right. They, they're certainly in pole position um, of those clubs with, you know, Manchester United not looking great and all the other teams struggling behind them. Just going back to, to West Ham, on the, on the one of Gregor's favourite nights that he'll, he'll never, ever forget the uh, Scotland's win over Spain last week. One Scot who didn't see the game was David Moyes. Uh, he was at Craven Cottage watching England's under-21s, partially because of Ben Johnson being in that team. And I do wonder now whether he wishes he'd put him in because that, that defence was absolutely horrendous. And and I saw some suggestions that he'd lost the team. And I, don't, I think you're right, Hugh. I think it's more... The, the losses of, of confidence because they looked they looked really good going forward West Ham but the the defending was atrocious and and the memorable ones will be Agards messing up and Fabianski messing up but actually it was the first two where it's just Sunday league defending where Wilson manages to get in between all of the defence and be totally unmarked to score. And the same with Joel Linton too, just running straight through the middle. It, it, it was horrendous. Yeah, totally agree with you. And starting to think that really, you know, the Europa Conference League is what is keeping David Moyes in a job. And maybe, uh, you know, what he's done as manager previously, maybe the hierarchy thinking, maybe there's, there's still something there. He's probably our best chance in terms of staying up, but I just wonder if they're kind of now, you know, wandering into a shock relegation. I think, look, ultimately the bottom three is probably going to come down to the final couple of games anyway, but um, any of the clubs down there could be, you know, one of the losers, one of the big losers, but ultimately other clubs down there are either showing us a little bit of form, a little bit of performance level, or they've made changes, you know, in the desire that, that something will will happen between now and the end of the season. West Ham need to think about whether... They need to do the same, I think, because um, I know it was Newcastle. I know they're a very good side, but 5-1 at home for West Ham is a very, very, very rare thing. Uh, And it was a very poor performance. So we'll see. We'll see. By the time you're listening to this, maybe they have made a decision over his future. Another club, which isn't making a decision just yet, is Nottingham Forest. They say Steve Cooper remains their manager, but results and performances must improve immediately. So pretty stark warning for Cooper. Forrest were beaten 2-1 by Leeds uh, this week. They're 17th in the Premier League, another club above the relegation zone, only on goal difference. In a statement, their owner, Evangelos Marinakis, said that he wished to end false and disruptive reporting about Cooper's future. Forrest haven't won in eight games. That's the longest winless run in the top flight. I guess before we get to this game, because it was a big win for Leeds, he's another manager we really need to ask is he going to hold on, I think? Tom Clark, I'll come to you, because the next run of games, away at Villa, home to Manchester United, away at Liverpool, at home to Brighton, and then away at Brentford, all of those games this month. It's a very difficult run for them at this point in time. You're starting to think Steve Cooper might not make it out of April as Forest boss. 
Well, Hugh, you've come to the editor in the team and uh, we're programmed to be very cynical, so I can tell you that we were all sat around on the Times Sports desk yesterday and when we saw the statement from uh, the Nottingham Forest owner, we thought, oh, right, we'll be gone on Monday then, um, <laughs> it, which is which is highly, highly likely, I would say. There's every chance that could happen because the other key part of that statement for me was also the reference to how results and performance must improve immediately. So it's one thing to say, yes, we're backing the manager, but also to say we're only backing him if he wins 5-0 on on Saturday so I think you make a good point about the fixtures as well there's a couple of Nottingham Forest fans that I know um, on the Times Sports desk and they kind of point to the fact that it's home form that is that is do or die and when you look at those home fixtures United, Arsenal, Brighton is only that set game against Southampton which comes right towards the end of the season that is the home game where you'd be thinking we can pick up points here that becomes a real problem for them so I would say if we were, you haven't asked me, but I'm going to ask a question to myself because it's uh, more interesting. I think Cooper's Cooper's the more in danger of the two of Moyes. I'll say this now, and as I say, you'll be listening when David Moyes has been sacked. But I think nothing about that statement to me actually made me think that he was in any way safe from the sack at all. I, I completely agree. I think I think I said it in the preseason preview that Forrest do not go down with Steve Cooper still in charge. There's no way that he'll get to within. This is Evangelis uh, Maranakis, the owner. That he'll he'll leave it till the end of the season with Cooper at the helm, if it's really touch and go. And this this makes his new contract in October did little to persuade me otherwise. And this does little either. I think that if it wasn't for the fans who sent like waves of love crashing down from the stands every single home game, you know, huge banners unfurled, chanting his name, singing him, they love him because he was the man who enacted a bit of a miracle last season inheriting a team that was at the bottom of the table and uh, ending their, their exile from the top flight. If it wasn't for them, he'd be gone already. He'd have been sacked three times over, I think. Marin, the only thing holding Maranakis back is the, the knowledge of the outcry that it will create uh, among the supporters. But I don't think that will hold till the end of the season. So he needs to, needs to get some results quickly or else I think he'll be gone. And also who to bring in? Who's the forest firefighter? Especially with Frank Lampard off the table, <laughs> who they're going to call? Yes, but I mean, <laughs> there's, not, there's parallels with Chelsea. Maranakis has chucked over a hundred players at five managers in five and a half years. Like they are, they are just as as culpable. They've made the job of the manager harder, not easier. Steve Cooper did not need this, this many players, and this many players at this. They're kind of all of a middle end sort of standard. There's how many could you say have been a success? I think, you know, it says a lot that Willie Bolly's absence is having a real impact in their defence. Like, a bit harsh to dig out Willie no, Bolly. I'm not right? digging him out, he's been brilliant. He's been brilliant, but he was like an under-the-radar kind yeah, of no, deadline day signing from, from Wolves. You know, like, he's not the player you thought your defensive kind of resolve was going to rest upon in the Premier League. And he's been brilliant, but he's missing now. And they, look, they don't look the same defensively. So it's been a hard task for Steve Cooper. If he keeps them up, it's an incredible job. Just obviously, I was on holiday last week and I was kind of following the events and seeing the kind of knock-on of managers being sacked. Uh, again, this theme of this podcast is me embarrassing myself, but um, a few weeks ago I talked about how Moyes, Cooper and Rogers were all still in their jobs and how they were the only ones in the relegation scrap who'd st- stuck around. Obviously, Rogers has gone now. Do you, want, do you do we wonder whether there's a like knock-on effect amongst owners where they look around and they think they've gone? We we should move too, you know. And you think about Tottenham and Chelsea when it comes to the likes of Nagelsmann and Pochettino. Well, we've got we've got to move. We need to sack our guy because they might get the guy we want after him. You wonder whether there's a little similar case of that going on at the bottom where they've looked at Palace as well, changing, bringing in maybe the only one after Sean Dyche who's in Roy Hodgson, who's known for kind of solid. Will keep you in the Premier League. Where you look, where you think uh, Maranakis is looking at Leicester and thinking, why right, they might they might Beats. end up. Yeah. They just played Leeds and Javi Gracia's had a pretty good impact. Absolutely. I mean, if you if you, if you see some of your rivals kind of getting a fillip from from changing the man at the helm, he doesn't need persuaded anyway. Like promotion last season under Cooper masked the the very very questionable uh, tenure of Angelus Maranakis uh, as a as an owner of Nottingham Forest. Like he locked out massively with Steve Cooper. So it would be my my view. And you know, it's shared with most Forest fans that you keep Steve Cooper come hell or high water. But I don't think he'll do it. Ex Nottingham Forest defender Gregor Robertson there. <laughs> um, <laughs> Leeds United. 
they deserve this win. Um, I think it's fair to say. I think they had about sixty three percent possession, twenty one shots. But it was a, it was a moment of magic to win it from Luis Sinistera, um, and they're at home next to Crystal Palace. So it's a massive game for them. They must keep the momentum going, and I think they can at least this weekend. What do you think, Tom Clark? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we talked about. Gracia's little incremental improvements in Leeds and Gregor touched on it there again. I mean, we've said it before, the the games at home are still pretty frenzied, but he's getting those performances to turn into to wins. And I think just little incremental things. I think Jack Harrison's been excellent. I know his goal this week was a bit of a tap-in, but he, I think he's been brilliant. Um, Sinistera as well, obviously scored a fantastic goal, but looks threatening all the time. You know, they've got these little players that are creating chances, as you say, Hugh, you're right, 21 uh, shots um, and dominating possession so it, it just feels like he's given them a little bit more focus a little bit of more cohesion uh, to the madness and it, it is, it's, pr- it's proving successful at the minute and I wouldn't be surprised to see them pick up another win We've got to talk about another team at the bottom next but also I think the team that beat them deserves some mention, managerless Leicester City, their relegation worries I think got a little bit deeper they were beaten by a pretty informed Aston Villa who got a dramatic late win at the King Power. This was another win for Villa, Tom Roddy. Um, They are now up to seventh, five wins and one draw in their last six games. A lot of praise for Unai Emery, who says, basically, I'm going to keep the pressure on these players. Pressure makes diamonds, if you like. What what do you think he's turning this Villa squad into? Pressure makes diamonds. It's poetic. (laughs) I I think he's organised them... And I think he's really, really motivated them. I, I saw them play at Stamford Bridge and they were absolutely excellent. And, and and admittedly, Chelsea do make a lot of teams look very good at the moment. But I think one of the things they've actually really benefited from is Danny Ings's departure. And I don't I don't mean that in a criticism of Danny Ings, but I think it was just a, a bit of a mistake in bringing him in and it confused their front line quite a lot, really. Um, they did, they'd invested a hell of a lot of money in Ollie Watkins, a, what was really a ch- championship record sum. I think Nathan Aki is the, is the record for the championship, but it, that was for a relegated side. So when he went from Brentford to Villa, it was a it was a record sum. And now we're seeing why they spent so much money up up front through the centre on his own. He's a clinical finisher, and he's got a hell of a lot of goals recently. And you would expect Gareth Southgate to be looking at that. You combine that with a organised and disciplined defence that are set up properly which is what Emery is so good at and it's really really effective and and I do think as well John McGinn he scored I think his first goal in 47 games at, at Stamford Bridge but he reminds me a little bit of a, a Jordan Henderson you just you just see him storming or a mix of Jordan Henderson and James Milner you just see him storming round the pitch absolutely always leaving a little bit on opponents he he must be a nightmare to play against and and he's got a superb left foot i, I just think they're really well organized and will be a a force for as long as they can hold on to Emery moving along very nicely Gregor Aston Villa at the moment. Yeah, Villa have been outstanding. They, I think it's four four clean sheets in the last six. Now that's the that's the the foundation for them. And undoubtedly, Watkins has just found a new kind of lease of life. Uh, he's always playing on the shoulder now and and trying to be sprung kind of in behind the back four uh, of the opponent. And and he's get and his finish was excellent. It was looked like he was kind of going to get get crowded out of uh, almost kind of. Barged off the ball just before before he kind of stuck out a leg and poked it into the corner. It was a fantastic finish, and uh, his his form has been so important. But I agree about McGinn too. I think he's you know he had a really difficult time again uh, under Gerard towards the end of uh, Gerard's tenure, and uh, he had to work his way back in the team. But now he's been a driving force in recent weeks, and I think also the way that Villa manage games has been excellent. The kind of Charlotte Dunker's written a piece t- uh, today about some of the kind of changes in their play, and they almost go to like a Six two 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 uh, to see how it game. Sometimes it's like really a really defensive shape, and 
teams are finding it hard to break down. That's uh, ultimately that's that's been the biggest change. They've they've got the, a new lease of life out of Watkins are finding a way of of getting him playing to his strengths, which is running towards the the opposition's goal, and ultimately a really defensive and sound uh, block to build upon. We've got to talk about another interim possible caretaker managerial appointment. And, you know, we're talking about clubs making the right decision next. It's so important Leicester City have a new boss very soon, I think. There are reports, Tom Clark, that Martin O'Neill or Rafa Benitez could come in as caretaker. Um, Martin O'Neill, former Leicester boss. But this is, this is I mean, this goes way back. This is former uh, League Cup winner, but a long, long time ago, in a different lifetime, possibly. I mean, you're talking about Frank Lampard. That's one thing. Martin O'Neill at Leicester, would that galvanise them? Who knows? As Ma- Matthew Sides written a piece today uh, in the Times talking about the madness of the managerial merry-go-round and how much he loves it, so I'm sure he'd be delighted to see Martin <laughs> O'Neill come back in a, in one of the only stories that could top Frank Lampard. I, I think you're right. I mean, I worry for Leicester. I, it's not. It's not that. I necessarily thought our oh, Brendan Rodgers was doing a great job, but just in the spirit of what we talked about with West Ham and keeping David Moyes for as long as they have, there is that sense of where where are you going if if you change the manager? Obviously, Crystal Palace, lots of people didn't think it was right to um, to lose Vieira, but at least they had a clear plan of what what they were going to do afterwards in bringing back Roy Hodgson, and it and it did at least make some sense when it took when you're talking about surviving relegation. But for Leicester you start to worry about where where the results might come from if they don't bring someone in who can galvanise. I don't know who that would be because you look at the squad and I start to think it's increasingly weak. Yes, they've had an awful lot of injuries and yes, they've not had the reinvestment of a lot of players that they sold. But you look at that team and you start thinking that a home match against Bournemouth that they've got on Saturday, yes, ticks all the boxes of a relegation six-pointer, but you start to wonder they might not even be favourites for that game. So I do worry whether... I'd certainly go Rafa Benitez over Martin O'Neill, Hugh, if you're offering me those two as, as options. But they, they definitely need to bring someone in and quickly because I mentioned the game on Saturday, but they've also got quite a lot of the teams around them. They play Leicester, they play Everton, they play Leeds, uh, they play Bournemouth on Saturday. So they've got the games there where they could pick up the points, but they're looking a bit lost at the moment. Uh, would you put either in charge, Tom Roddy, O'Neill or Rafa? I would probably put Martin O'Neill in charge simply because I can't get enough of Martin O'Neill and I love hearing <laughs> his stories. So I would I would commute from Reading to uh, Leicester with Charlotte Dunker to uh, listen to Martin O'Neill's stories. They are absolutely brilliant. And uh, I'm not sure Rafa Benitez is, is the guy you need. To be honest, I wasn't hugely inspired by either possibility. Neither made me think, well they're safe. I think they hoped for so long that they could rely on having good players being one of those too good to go down clubs. And that's not this season. That's why we're seeing all of these. That's one of the reasons why we're seeing all of these managerial sackings, because the Clubs, the the clubs who are usually right at the top of the table have have slipped down. The clubs that are usually just above the relegation zone are way overperforming and are looking at fighting for Europe in only the final weeks of the season. And the bottom is packed with that category of clubs, the the two goods to go down. And I think that there was a bit of a laziness around Leicester in dealing with this. And, and they, they, I, I believe they could have got Sean Dyche if they'd have wanted to. Maybe that's not, you know, maybe that's not the right decision. Maybe it's not the kind of uh, football they wanted and the direction they wanted to go in. But you look at what he's doing at Everton now and think maybe it would have been the smart thing. And just one final point uh, to make. I, I found it quite uh, funny that uh, a lot of people were suggesting Graham Potter for Leicester, he wouldn't be attracted to that job right now. There is it, it, That assumes that they're going to survive relegation, doesn't it? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A few things uh, to round off the podcast this week. Um... I wanted to ask you guys just what you thought about Fulham's Alexander Mitrovic, who's been banned for eight games by the Independent Commission after that push on referee Chris Kavanagh in the FA Cup defeat at Manchester United. It was the three-match ban for the sending-off, obviously, then three for violent conduct and an additional two for improper, abusive, insulting and threatening language. He got a £75,000 fine as well. Uh, Marco Silva, the Fulham boss, a two-match ban after he was sent off. The FA, though, say they want a stronger punishment against both men and intends to appeal against the sanctions, but it will wait for the written reasons from the commission. Following Mitrovic's red card, the FA said its standard punishment was clearly insufficient, which clearly, with the, an eight-game ban, an eight-game ban, this was agreed with, but ultimately they think it should be even more. And that's really what I wanted to ask you. More than eight games for what I- Alexander Mitrovic did, would that be fair? I completely agree with the FA. I do, I do not think this makes enough of a statement. It, it it will be it will harm Fulham. Yes, it will be damaging for for Mitrovic. Yes, but I don't think it's as much of a deterrent. And given what we see, these horrendous videos you see from Sunday League football, for a player to put their hands on a referee in that manner, I think needed far more than eight games, at least double figures. Okay. All right, Tom Roddy, I know you got a shoot off. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Gregor Robertson, what do you think? It's not far off, right? I remember reading Martin Samuel's column and he thought uh, he'd kind of tallied it up for the for the various aspects of that, that he, as you've just done, and came to nine. And I remember kind of nodding away. I thought at nine or ten, it had to be a big punishment. And I think... If we're getting further than that, then um, I don't see it having actually much more of an impact. I think that nine or ten games is a is a pretty big statement, and it will be a huge punishment for for Fulham. I think they've got eleven from when it happened. They would have had eleven games left in the season, so you know it could have done it for the rest of the season. But oh, I yeah. don't really, I don't really think though. You know, it's one of those things like a player gets banned, the club has to deal with it. It, it just is what you know, it that's, is. That, I, that's part of the punishment, though. It's a punishment for the player. It's not a punishment for the club, is it? It's not that they've been deducted points. The punishment the for the player is... will automatically punish the club. Yeah, but it, but the, my point is that just is what it is. If he moves club in the summer and his ban had gone over the end of the season, it would punish a club that he wasn't even playing for at the time. But it is just what it is when it comes to player suspensions. People can have different views, and I I think nine or ten games was would would have been about right, and so it's not that far off it. I can understand the FA appeal in it, but I don't think they're going to get like doubled. No, I don't, and I don't think it should be doubled. No, I don't and, either. You know, Gregor, you're you're citing Martin Samuel, and um, he and you are kind of putting a kind of logical case together. You know, totting it up this for this, and Hugh, you outlined three three games for this, three games for that. I'm, I'm going to be the cynical editor here, and you know, in sports journalism, so much is done on numbers. If a team gets thrashed four four nil, it's a big story. If they get thrashed seven nil, it's a huge story. This is one of those where it was such a massive moment in the season. And as Tom said, in, in the context of conversations around the bigger picture in the game with the abuse that referees take, I think there's a there's a again I come back to this point uh, on the podcast again. There's a PR element to this where eight games just doesn't sound enough. 
I mean, aside from the totting up of three games for this, three games for that, eight doesn't sound enough. Ten sounds a lot. Ten sounds like a lot. Yeah, I agree. Do you That's know what, what I mean? And it, equally, as as you say, kind of, you know, they've got twelve games left. A twelve game ban slash out for the season. He's ruled out for the season. Like that sends a, yeah. it is a statement. You know, Tom Tom referenced it at the end there in a kind of not quite a flippant way, but he kind of mentioned double figures. Like, that that's what we're talking about here, and that's what where you get into the sending a message part. Eight doesn't sound like a lot for something that everyone was so shocked by and something that in the modern game can be so um, influential across across the sport at high and low levels. Eight doesn't sound like a lot. So I can understand why the FA have gone for more, because ten sounds like a lot. Twelve sounds like a lot. It It, it goes beyond the rights and wrongs of three for this part of the punishment, etc, etc. I think there needs to be more of a statement and that's why the double figures comes into it, I think. It would be it would be intriguing to kind of compare it to what we might see for other other racks. Um, I remember you said after that, that it was about five games. Was going to I, I would have said, yeah, I would have said five games. Yeah. Now, interestingly, I, listen, I was kind of looking at the one incident and saying five games for the push for me. So in the end... When I look at the the adjudication, if you like, they've gone three games just for violent conduct, straight red card, and then they've added more. So for me, with the violent conduct, I would have just said it's it's kind of quite extreme violent conduct because it was aimed at the ref. So instead of three games, I would have given him five. Then they've gone for the threatening and insulting language, which obviously I wasn't, you know, we were talking about the push. So I can see how they've ended up with with eight games, to be perfectly honest. If it had been 10, I don't think there would have been many complaints either, though. That's the thing. I just what I find most interesting is that the FA, having seen the eight, will probably push for more. And I think that's in a way that's a positive because they're not just accepting that it's eight games. They're saying, look, we do need to send a message, particularly Again, I, I, you know, I know a lot of people think you can't always extrapolate straight from the top level professionals down the, the down to the grassroots level or down to kids football or whatever it might be. But there is a part of me that thinks we see referees treated so badly in Sunday League. We hear about some absolute horror stories. You know, how many people think what's an eight game ban and ultimately go out there on a Sunday to take out their aggression or what's going wrong in their lives, either on another player. And if they do that, then the referee who steps into the middle of that situation. So probably now reflecting on it and looking at the reasoning, again, I wouldn't go too extreme because I think, I think the, I think the kind of mark brought in a couple of years ago for a ban for racism, for example, would be 12 matches. So 10, when you're talking about abuse of a referee, it's probably fair in, in this element, intimidation, aggression, whatever you might call it. He didn't punch the referee, obviously. I don't know what the exact language used was, and that, that might ultimately boil down to be part of the um, the punishment as well. But um, we'll wait and see. I just think it's a positive that the referee are kind of asking, why is it eight games? And they'll take it from there, as opposed to just accepting the eight games. I know Fulham fans probably won't want to hear that, but... I think they they need to direct their ire to, towards Alexander Mitrovic rather than anyone else. Anyway, very quickly, Gregor, there are a couple of things that you've written, written about this week that I wanted to ask you about because um, there are some massive games coming in the EFL and non-league football as well. Burnley, they've got the chance to be promoted straight back to the Premier League. 18 league games unbeaten for Vincent Company's side. 17 points from their final nine games. And they will also become the first second-tier team since Leicester in 2013-14 to break 100 points in the second tier and then therefore win the league in, in, well, real style, really. Do you think that's going to happen? Difficult game against Middlesbrough this weekend. They could be promoted uh, depending on the result between Millwall and Luton as well. But um, yeah, it might be a great Easter weekend because it might happen on Friday. could happen on Monday too for those Burnley fans. Yeah, against Sheffield United, who are the only team who've really inflicted a, a serious you know, beating in uh, uh, all season. And it was obviously second. So yeah, two... two Two mouthwatering clashes. Uh, I think they will do it in one of them. The Middlesbrough game will be fascinating because Middlesbrough have obviously had such a, a remarkable turnaround un, under Michael Carrick. I think they've actually more or less got the same points per game ratio since since he's been put in charge. Might well have been second if he'd been been there all season. So that's they're kind of they seem to be the two best teams in the league really uh, over that period in time. And they're just a, a, a remarkable turnaround. Just looking and I kind of realised that. Sean Dyche was sacked on Good Friday last year and they could go up on Good Friday this year and what's happened in that, that space of that year is extraordinary. Like it's a completely 
changed football club and, and changed team on the pitch as well, obviously. The basically, style of play, as everyone knows, has been completely transport, uh, transformed. Dominate possession and, and the pass count and, and uh, goals, everything that they still... But I, I find it interesting too that company is still often referenced, the kind of culture that he inherited that was clearly... You know, it was almost a nod to Sean Dyche and what he achieved in these his eight years at the club, which has really helped him. And it was something a foundation for him when he went into that club. and And he's kind of he's built upon himself. So I think they will do it this weekend. Yeah, and it's, look, it's also a, a very important for the race for second as well between Sheffield United and Middlesbrough. So Easter weekend's always huge, isn't it? In the EFL, it's kind of two two fixtures in quick succession. You kind of get an idea of what the the shape of the the running's going to look like. Um, and there's another massive game, as you said there, in the National League between Wrexham and Notts County on Monday, which I'm I'm actually going to and looking forward to very much because they are both on course to smash every record and at that level. Um, you, everyone knows about Wrexham's kind of uh, Hollywood-funded rise. Notts County have have gone toe to toe with them all season. They're three points off joining Wrexham on a hundred points. Uh, Wrexham have a game in hand as well so not really need to win but uh, it's been a fascinating season they'll, as I say they'll break, break records for the most goals scored most points accumulated most wins but both of them will do it in the same season so it's been really Notts County are 25 points ahead of, of Woking in third so it's a real uh, clash of the titans at, uh, at that level as well and uh, one of many games to look forward to this weekend in the EFL and below We will reflect on that I think uh, a little bit the next time we talk because um Kind of remarkable what's happening in that league, as my best mate always tells me. That's his banker every weekend, Notts County, Wrexham double. So there you go. <laughs> They've been good for quite some time. Uh, anyway, gentlemen, listen, been a pleasure to talk to you. Loads of things covered today. And as always, on a Monday, hopefully Monday, maybe Tuesday with the bank holiday, we're going to have some big football to talk about the next time we meet as well. Make sure you're reading some of the great journalism over the weekend with all of the great action that we have in store. So download the Times app wherever you get your apps from. Just hit the sport section Uh, make sure you get the game as well there's going to be a couple of bumper editions across the weekend so you can download it online thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game or as always make sure you pick up a paper when you see it we'll see you next time Acast anbefaler mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skide af alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.